Good to see you here this morning. You're probably wondering what's going on here. Uh, you, we're testing a choir. You didn't know about that? Okay, we're not testing a choir. Uh, we, we, we are doing this two-tier thing. We want to, you to feel the, the punch of a text we're going to study this morning. And rather than explain the text, I want to see if you see it there. So why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of James. We're going through the book of James right now. And we're in James chapter 2. It's in the Bible. Uh, if you don't know where it's at, look on the person next to you. Look on your smart device. We're in James chapter 2. And this morning we're covering the first 13 verses. Let's go ahead and stand as I read God's word. James chapter 2. James 2, starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are going to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You may be seated. We're trying to get you to feel the passage this morning. So for all of you on the stage, we favor you as you sit in your throne chairs. And for those of you who are down below, you're welcome to be here. But know your place. You're not as favored as those who are up here. In fact, you are disregarded. Not really. Okay, not really. We love you all. All are welcome here. Uh, But we're trying to get you to feel the punch of this text. You see, James is writing this letter to this church who has a variety of problems. And he starts off the letter by saying greetings. It's like he sticks his hand out to shake their hand, and when they stick their hand out to shake his hand, he punches them in the gut. That's what he's doing here. Hey, how you doing? Let me tell you about something that's really messed up in your church. You see, in this church, they were showing partiality. They were showing favoritism. They were not just uh, supposed to be hearing the word, but they were supposed to do it in a variety of areas. But unfortunately, they were not showing their faith in action by their partiality and their, their favoritism, where they were elevating some up here onto the better seats, and they were disregarding others and making them be demoted to the, to the lower seats. And so James, 
is going to punch them. Because he's saying, look, you need to listen to the word and you need to do what it says. Not just with the orphans and widows and living a life of holiness, but also by the way you treat other people, particularly the way you've been disregarding the poor. And that's where James is going this morning. It's really simple, and yet it has quite a punch. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's the main point. Show no partiality. Apparently, discrimination and favoritism was a great problem in this church. They looked on the outward appearance, and they determined who was elevated and who was demoted. And yet, James says, according to verse 1, that those who have their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are not to favor one person over another. If you notice in verse 1 that only Jesus is the Lord of glory. Only he is enthroned in glory. He is elevated, and he's the only one that should be exalted and praised above others. No one should be elevated above another person. In fact, what James is going to say is that, he, is that favoritism is evil. Showing partiality is flat-out evil. And he's going to get into the details of that and punching this church. Jump into verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Can you imagine visitors, they're coming into the church, and they're greeted, and some are given the preferential treatment, and, and others are dissed and dismissed. The rich man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing is greeted. You sit here in a good place in these throne chairs. But when a poor man in shabby clothing comes in, he's greeted. You, you stand over there, or you, you sit down here at my feet. Now, why would the church do this? The church that we're talking about here is poor. They are kicked out of Jerusalem. They're dispersed throughout the empire. They, they are sojourning. They do not have money. They're oppressed people. They are a poor church. So why would they make distinctions? I think for two reasons. They're making distinctions because of image, and they're probably making distinctions because of kickbacks. You see, they want to project the right image. They're a poor church, and so the rich come in, and they're like, man, we can start to get some respect as we go throughout the empire here. And so the rich are given proper placement so they can be seen as a respectable church, uh, gaining importance in society. And you see that type of mentality even today as people pick and choose churches based upon, are the people there kind of maybe like me? Are they the cooler hipper parts of culture? Am I going to get in there and, and things are going to kind of help me? And even pastors, when they're, they're considering pastoring a church, they're, they're, they're checking out the people and thinking, hmm, are those people kind of going to help me get ahead? Are they going to help me project the right image? And that leads into the second reason of kickbacks. They're, they're giving preferential treatment to the rich because of kickbacks. The rich have the money. The rich have the jobs. And so maybe if they treat the rich good enough, the rich will give them some money, maybe to their church, and also give them some kickbacks and jobs. 
And you see it today when people, maybe they come into church, they gravitate those with the, the, the most networking potential to help them in their lives and their marriage and the career and they kind of ignore everyone else. James calls this pure evil. He calls it evil. He uses the word evil. Look at verse 4. Look at verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? When you're making distinctions upon outward appearance or race or income level, then you're acting like a judge with evil thoughts. You're making a judgment about who's in and who's out. You're giving special treatment to determine who gets it and who doesn't get it. But there is one judge, and it's not you. And that judge is God. And we are told from the scriptures here that God chooses and chose the poor to be rich in faith. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Now, this is not saying that God saves all poor people and not the rich, but is pointing out the fact that God, in his electing love, has chosen some of the poor to be saved and part of his church. And it's often the poor who realize not only their physical poverty, but also their spiritual poverty. And he wants them to be rich in faith, and they're due a large eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. Now, allow me for a moment to branch out. Okay, I want to branch out with this concept of God not just favoring the poor, but God becoming poor. The Son of God becoming poor. Let me share a passage with you from 2 Corinthians Verse 8, chapter 8, verse 9. Let me share this with you. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Let's try to imagine the Lord Jesus in glory, steps down, takes on skin, humbles himself, becomes poor, obviously, from his elevated position, and not only did he live a life of poverty and suffering while he was here, but he humbled himself ultimately to dying on the cross for poor sinners so that he could take poor sinners and make them rich in him through faith so they can be reconciled to God and live forever. So not only has God elected the, some of the poor to be rich in faith, but the Lord Jesus Christ also became poor so that we could be rich in him. Do you see the way he's arguing? How dare you show favoritism to the rich and dismiss the poor? It's like you're spitting in the face of God's election. It's like you're spitting in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ who became poor. Not only are they dismissing the poor, which does not make sense, but they're also elevating the rich. And James is going to go, why would you do that? Because it's the rich that are causing you all the problems. The rich, they're the ones that are oppressing you. And in fact, they are oppressing you in your jobs. And they're taking some of you to court. So why would you elevate the rich? Look what he says about the rich. Look at verse 6. Are not the rich the ones oppressing you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now, understand these are generally true statements, with their exceptions. 
But the poor generally are more open to the gospel, and the the rich are generally more against it. These are general statements. And keep in mind that most of this church are poor agricultural laborers, and the rich here are the wealthy landowners who would rip off the poor laborers and even prevail in court. In addition, the rich are the ones who are blaspheming the honorable name. They're dissing and dismissing God by oppressing his people, and yet you have the church catering to the rich. This does not make sense. If this church is being oppressed by the rich, then why, when the rich come into their service, were they catering to the rich? Why would they do that? And you, you think about it today, okay? Many of you are going to come to church here for a while, then you're going to move on. Many of you come from different churches. But I want you to ask yourself the question, do we, let's say in the West, as the modern church, do we cater to the rich? One of my favorite uh, authors, David Platt, believes that a lot of churches inadvertently, I doubt there's ever a discussion on the leadership level, but inadvertently design their buildings, design their programs not to serve the poor, but to cater to the rich. Because the rich want comfort, the rich want excellence, and nice, clean, safe programs. And Platt says, it's like we say to the poor, sit at our feet and we'll throw you our scraps. Now, I don't want to branch out and look at the, the broad church. Just, just look at them. I want to look at us at, our, at EBF. Is there any way at EBF, Evanston Bible Fellowship, is there any way that we show favoritism? Is there any way we may be tempted to show favoritism over the years? What's been going on in our hearts? One of the ways we can be tempted to show favoritism is to say, hey, look, we realize there are a lot of students that go here, but we're going to show preferential treatment to those who are not in school because they have more income to give than a student would. Well, the flip side of that is to say, well, you know what? We're going to show preferential treatment to students because they're the next generation and they have so much youth and energy and we're going to ignore the others. We don't want to do that. We don't want to show preferential treatment. We don't want to show favoritism. We need to continue to look at our hearts individually and look at our hearts as a church. Because when we show favoritism, you know what we're doing? We are failing to love our neighbors. We're just not loving our neighbors. We're kicking out neighbor love. When we elevate a certain group and push aside another, we're kicking out neighbor love. Look at James' argument as it continues. Look at verse 8. He continues on with his argument. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This royal law is the law of the king. It's the law of King Jesus, which can be summed up there if you want to underline it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But you break that law and sin if you show partiality and you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Continue on with verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of law. He's making a point here on the law to check our hearts. 
They may shrug their shoulders and think, what's the big deal for elevating the rich and dismissing the poor? But James is saying that whoever fails in one point has become guilty and accountable for all of it. And he continues this example in, in verse 11 when someone says, well, um, what about the one who commits murder but doesn't commit adultery? He says he's still a transgressor of the law. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but if you break one law, you've broken all the laws. You are accountable for a holy God just by breaking one of his commandments because he's a holy God. Sometimes people view it uh, almost like uh, knocking over bowling pins. Like you, you bowl and you knock over the pin. You say, oh, I just lied, but I didn't commit the other sins. Oh, I bowled again. Oh, I knocked over the adultery pin. But the other pins are still, no, I still haven't murdered yet. And his argument is, look, if you break one, you break them all. And it's not like knocking over bowling pins one at a time. It's more like a pane of glass. Once that pane of glass has been cracked, the whole thing's ruined. That's what it's like. You break one, you break them all. Because our God is holy. And when I'm talking to someone who's, who's yet to come to faith, and I say, why, why is God going to let you into heaven? And they say, generally, I've been a good person. And I say, well, have you ever sinned? They say, well, of course, but I've not been as bad as I could be. I may have uh, lied here and, and maybe have cheated here, but on a whole, I didn't commit those other, other sins. But the reality is, you commit one sin, you break them all because our God is holy. And the argument that James is making here is, okay, sure, you may not commit adultery, church. You may not murder. But when you show favoritism and partiality, you're guilty before a holy God. That's his argument. That's the seriousness of sin. He concludes with verses 12 and 13. Finish up the text. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Don't just hear the word, but speak and act on it. In fact, he's saying, let the coming judgment motivate your behavior. You, believer, are going to be judged. But get this, believer, you're not going to be judged under a law that condemns you to hell. Instead, you'll be judged under the law of liberty. You see, the law of liberty still contains commands in the word of God that are all over the word, including the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But it's the law of liberty because you have been freed from the condemning effects of sin and now you're free to obey the commands of God. So you still obey the commandments, like the Ten Commandments. But it's not a law that if you break it, you're going to hell. You have forgiveness through Jesus Christ, and yet you still obey it because it is now a law of liberty. You want to. You're free. You're empowered by the Spirit to now obey this law of liberty. And he kind of sums it all up, what he's getting at, when he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Since God has shown mercy to you in Christ, now you display his mercy to others. You're not to judge. You're not to make distinctions. For judgment without mercy to the one who's shown no mercy is going to get the judgment of God. But now, those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ, God has shown favor to you in Christ. Now you're to show mercy. And that's the kind of point of all what James is getting at, is that this church has swapped a merciful spirit for a spirit of judgmentalism. They're passing judgment. They're showing partiality. They're elevating one, dismissing another. And James is like, what happened to that merciful spirit? 
if you were saved in Christ and he showed mercy to you, that's now supposed to spill out of you onto others. God continued to pursue you, showed mercy to you, and now you're to show it to others. That's what God wants. The women in our church this winter, they're going to have a retreat. The men had ours this past winter. They're going to have theirs in February. And the title of the women's retreat is going to be Her Heart for His. The her being the women, the his uh, being God. And the idea is that we want our hearts to be in line with God. Her heart for his. And if God's heart is a merciful heart aimed at you, and you find in you something that's showing partiality, making judgments, discriminating between people, you're not imitating your Father in heaven. So you want to have a merciful heart, as he has a merciful heart, aimed at you, and you want to aim it at others. That's the idea. Those who call ourselves Christians want to be imitators of Christ. Where we have to continually guard our hearts against the evils of favoritism and partiality. If we see it in us as individuals, if we see it in us as a church, we want to repent and display the mercy of Christ. Now, what I want to do is I want to kind of finish up here on a note of encouragement. Because on a whole, I don't see us doing this much in this church right now. Maybe a little bit, but I don't see us showing uh, a partiality or judging one another and doing this two-tier thing. So I, I, don't, I don't see that happening much. So I want to end on a note of encouragement. Now, I want you to let this encouragement take you pretty far. I'm going to say some things uh, on this encouragement that may surprise you. But just, just listen to this. I'm going to reflect on some of my past experiences with people in this church, in the church before where I was at, of not showing partiality. And this is what I think James is getting at. The church I served before here was in a Los Angeles area called Santa Monica. And we used to have a woman, a godly woman. Her name was Shannon. And she um, would come to church from Hollywood to Santa Monica, which is a pretty big trek uh, by taxi, but she was, she was blind. And when she would show up at our church, the people in our church had no discrimination against her or partiality. They would love her. They would help her. They would welcome her. They would serve her. They would just help her navigate life. She was never a burden in that church. And now, many years ago, I came to this church. And I've seen this church rally around people, not discriminate, not show partiality. So let me kind of say some encouraging things from you guys. Uh, In the past, there were some parents who had a child with a variety of needs. And I've seen this church here not go, you know what, that's annoying. Take care of it yourself. But I've seen this church help with therapy, help with meals, help with friendship, not just for a week or a weekend, but over the long haul. You're, you're not showing favoritism or partiality. You're not saying, well, that's just going to drag us down. I can't, you're not helping give me kickbacks, no. I've also seen a college student uh, at this church go out of his way and continually to bring a friend from the community to church. And this friend from the community had a variety of, of mental challenges. And this student would bring this guy. Others would welcome him. No partiality. No ignoring. But I want to end with a story that has probably stuck with me the most. And it happened a while back, so it's long enough in the distance uh, that a lot of time has passed where I'm, I'm now free to share this story. And it shows the mercy of this church, of many of my brothers and sisters over the years who have shown great love and mercy to others. So there was a, <clears throat> a man who used to go to our church, 
and he had many strikes against him. He had so many strikes against him that even the society had cast him off. And the temptation from many of you could have been to cast this guy off as well. So I'm going to share with you some of these strikes, and I'm going to kind of speak in code uh, a little bit since there's some kids in the service. So I hope you can track with me. So strike number one, he was poor. Did not phase you guys a bit. You guys welcome the men. In fact, some of you would help him look for a job over and over and over again. Some of you would take him out for meals, uh, and you would take care of some of his needs. That didn't phase you at all. Strike number two, <clears throat> he was an ex-con. He's very open about his story. Didn't seem to phase you or freak you out. You still uh, would love him, welcome him, even try to help him to find a job. It's very difficult to do for an ex-con. But you welcomed him and loved him. Strike number three. He was on the Predator database. I don't want to elaborate on what that means here, but people in our church, the ones that knew that, loved him, welcomed him. Of course, they proceeded with wisdom, but they still prayed and got in the word of this guy. This guy was at our church probably for two or three years. He would come to our worship services. He was primarily involved in our prayer meetings. That's where he was most of the time. So he's in this loving community. The elders all know him, and we knew him then and knew his story. He's in the prayer group. He's attending worship. But then something happened where he went back to his old life. And this is strike four. He got caught up in drugs. Didn't phase you guys. Did not phase you. People in this church were just going after him, saying, come on, man, you've got to get out of this. You can't go back to this. What are you doing? Just going after him. And that brings us to strike five, or you could say five and six. Um, he was involved in same-sex prostitution. Now, the church could have dropped him along the way, a long time ago, right? He said, forget it, forget it, forget it. The church is like, no. We're going after this guy. Many of you are stepping up, going after this guy, loving him, um, caring for him, trying to, in a sense, rescue him from this situation. So along the way, I'm, I'm, I'm involved, but most people in the church that were involved with him were really doing most of the legwork. But we found out he was in a pretty bad situation where they, they feel like, okay, pastor, you've got to go with us to get this guy out of his situation. So we went to this, this house in Chicago. I'll, I'll never forget this. It's the strangest situation. <clears throat> we get there, and it, it's like a hostage situation. I don't know how else to explain it. He comes in from the other room. He sees us. As soon as he sees us, he starts breaking down. Starts breaking down, crying. And, he, and he's, he, he's just broken. And, and, he, and I'm like, we're like, come on. We'll take you out of here right now. Let's go right now. Let's go. And he was just broken. So his handler comes in, takes him away. Then his handler comes back in and kicks us out. <clears throat> and we're like, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? So we just forget this guy. He's in so deep. And, and they're like, no, let's do something. Let's call the police. Pastor, you call the police. Great. <clears throat> so I call the police, and I'm like, hey, guess what? Uh, there is a guy. I'm his pastor, and he's a hostage. And I was ready for them to go, hostage? Really? Whoa, where's he at? And I gave them the address, and they're like, they said, we are not going to do anything. 
He's just there. I'm sure he's there under his feet. Like, no, he's a hot. No. And so then we go back to pray again. And I'm thinking, how are we going to get this guy out? Now, I don't want to explain this next step, but we went online to the database, the Predator database, and discovered that he was a non-reporting offender. We'll get into that later. Um, so when you're a non-reporting offender, that's breaking the law. You can get picked up right away. So I called the police back. I said, I know you're not going to do anything about him being a hostage, um, but he's a non-reporting offender. And they're like, what? Where? Here's the address. Busted in, arrested him, took him away to jail. Some time passes. People in my church are like, uh, we, need to, we need to see what's up with this guy. And so, you go, pastor. So, uh, <clears throat> I go to jail. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm scared to death to see this guy because I'm responsible for putting him in jail. And I, I, I sit down with him, and he's like, we're talking through this little intercom thing. He's like, did, did you call the police on me? Yeah, I did. <laughs> he's like, thank you so much. He's like crying, thank you. And then he started naming people in our church. Thank this person and this person and this person. Thank you so much. Thank you for rescuing me. So grateful and broken because the church here did not show partiality. Kept going after him. Some time passes. He moved away. I think he was on the south side or moved down with his brother in Tennessee. I'm not sure where he was. I was out biking one day and we were both biking on this trail and I saw him there and he was like beaming. He's repentant. He's following Jesus. He's serious about the Lord, walking with the Lord. And once again, thankful to you guys in this church for showing no partiality. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Father, there are many ways that you've come after us. Many, many ways you've come after us. And you kept pursuing us when we ignored you. You kept coming after us. And you didn't disregard us through all of our strike one, strike two, strike three, strike four. You pursued us, pursued us. And now you've saved us. And how dare we discriminate and show partiality? Forgive us. May we move toward everyone. May we show love, neighbor love toward everyone. And if someone has a variety of strikes against them, may we go after them and love them and ask them to come to the mercy of Christ and to repent. But Lord, if we have shown partiality, favoritism recently, will you forgive us? May we be people who are steeped in your mercy and continue to remember that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we praise you for your mercy. And may it spill out of us onto others. In Jesus' name, amen.